I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 173 of the Intercooler podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Um, this week, we're talking about the individual cars that have saved their makers. Um, we've got examples across the board, supercars, luxury cars, um, everyday family cars, all sorts. And in every case, they saved the company that produced them um, in one way or another. Uh, so there's some, I think, some interesting tales in here. So please enjoy the episode. Before we get started, I'm just going to remind you about the Intercooler app and website um, we are a very different kind of car magazine. Um, we have only the best writers. We've got what we think is the best team of automotive writers working today anywhere in the world. Um, and we publish a new story every single day of the working week on our app and website. And we carry no ads. So what we're trying to deliver is the best online reading experience possible. Um, so if you haven't already taken out your 30-day free trial, go and do it now. You can find us on the App Store by searching The Intercooler or just head to the-intercooler.com and subscribe that way. However you subscribe, you can use the app and the website. Um, so that's us trying to make our the stories that we publish as convenient and as accessible and as easy to read as possible. So go and check it out if you haven't already, the-intercooler.com. Um, we think you'll like it. So thank you for doing that and enjoy this episode. First things first, Andrew, I think we need to sort of clarify a point here. Are we really saying, so I'm looking at the list of cars that we're going to talk about. Some of the most prestigious sports and supercar makers on the planet are on this list. Some of the biggest mass market car makers are on this list. Yeah. Are we really saying that individual models have saved those companies, that without those models, these companies might not exist now? With some, with I think some, that's yeah. the case. Um, I mean, the, <laughs> I always say this to my children when they're trying to decide what they're going to do. I'll, I always just say to them, you'll never know what would have happened if you'd done the other thing. Yeah. And so we don't know that any of these cars, you know, would Aston Martin exist today if the DB7 had never come along? Well, I mean, with cars, with, you know, with companies like that, there's so much equity in the brand that probably someone would have come along and bought them and done something else for them. So I think when we say save, I think what we mean are companies that were in a state of considerable decline on a trajectory, if you like, that had it not been arrested by something, in this case, the cars we're going to talk about, then their situations would have become extremely serious, quite possibly terminal. Uh, and at the very least, they would have to have been reborn, maybe under different ownership or in a completely different way. So what we are saying is that these cars are certainly game changing and in a lot of cases, genuinely life saving. So, yeah. yeah um, but as I said, you know, who knows? Hmm. You know, that's, who knows what true. would have happened with so many of them? Because, you know, if these cars hadn't come along because they did. But I think hmm. everybody understands what we're talking about. And in a couple of cases, um, we've got big multinational mass market car makers on this list, yeah. and they may well have pulled out of certain territories were it not for single models have, that went on to, a, to achieve enormous success. Uh, so yeah. the point is, for a struggling car maker, one model, one new car can make all the difference, can't it? Yeah, and, and, I, think and I think there's another point to make here. It's not just the car. Uh, we will see as we go through the course of this podcast, you know, a car man manufacturer finds itself back to the world. They produce a car which works and they think, oh, that's interesting. So they continue. So they take that philosophy mm. and carry it forward. And guess what? You know, the next car is pretty good, too. And, mm. and so on and so forth. So it sets a new direction for the company. Yeah. And it's as much what went on after that um, as the car itself, which, you know, rescued them from who knows what. Mm. So let's get started then. Um, I've chosen this as the first one because there is an anniversary that we can hang it off. 20 years ago, Bentley launched the Continental GT. Yeah. Um, 
our latest writing recruit, Dr. Ulrich Eichhorn, um, he's written a piece for us very, very recently about the Continental GT because he was um, engineering boss at Bentley when the car was launched. In fact, a lot of the engineering work had been done before he arrived, but he was yeah. at the time the car was launched responsible for engineering at Bentley. Um, and so he's he's written about how the car came to be. Um, and it was a tremendous success for um for bentley early writes in his story that when they launched the car they took six and a half thousand orders a year's worth of production almost straight away um this at a time when in the year before bentley had built 1200 cars yeah and that's 1200 cars of all sorts yeah this was six and a half thousand orders for one coupe Amazing. Didn't have flying spurs or or anything else that was spinning off that platform at the same. I mean, I mean, talk about transformational. Um, I mean, Bentley really. What I mean, so Bentley's well, Rolls Royce and Bentley's previous owner, Vickers, um, had no interest in the companies, um, no investment, and they were getting by. So many British posh brands had done in the past on sort of oldie worldie charm, yeah, um, because they certainly couldn't compete. Um, and then, you know, as we know, Volkswagen came along in 1997, um, bought, bought Bentley and they were always going to do something. Um, and, and Uli talks, doesn't he, about, about this sort of boardroom battle that went on between, uh, actually the company's CEO now, Adrian Hallmark, who was then his marketing director saying, we need this to be an aspirational coupe. Um, and whereas others were saying, well, no, Bentley makes big, large saloons and that's what we should be doing. And Adrian, no, 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 no. We, we want, to make we need to make a car that people just fall in love with and he mm. was so right yeah and you know but, and but, but particularly after, in particularly in 2003 with the Le Mans win you know this Jag- uh, Bentley's sporting heritage has come to the fore yeah. again it continues to be a sporting brand and so it had to be a sporting you know in relative terms a sporting car didn't it and Adrian was yeah, absolutely I, right and and if you look a little bit forward from there. I mean, that was just the start. Then they start introducing other versions. Then they bring in the Flying Spur. And just before the crash of 0708, they got to a point, and there can't be very many of these cars, but they actually, they literally, they couldn't build enough cars at crew. So they started building um, a few, I think it were Flying Spurs, came out of the Volkswagen factory in Dresden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're the only Bentleys ever not to be built in Britain because they just couldn't keep up with the demand. And so, you know, they were building by then um, about 10, 11,000 cars a year before the crash, which is approximately 10 times what they'd been building, you know, a decade earlier under the, under the you know, the last years of Vickers. It is the most extraordinary turnaround. Mm. Um, and, you know, and they've, they've really just been building on that ever since. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, there were spin-offs, the the Flying Spur, the um the drop top model as well. And in 2021, early 2021, Bentley produced the 80,000th Continental GT, um, not including the spin-off, well, probably the, the drop top models, but certainly not the spur. Um yeah. and yeah, and now you I, I actually don't have the numbers how many cars Bentley is producing these days, but you look at the model range um, with the Flying Spur, with the Bentayga, the, the Conti GT, um, and sort of the low volume special cars that they do as well. It's just, it's extraordinary how it's turned around in 20 years off the back yeah. of the that first Conti GT. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> there was, just as an aside, there was this amazing tale from Uli's piece about the Conti GT, about testing and development, about how they, that was one of his... Um, responsibilities at the time was really improving bentley's um testing and development programs um and one of the tests that they did that i thought was really interesting is they they took a a prototype car and leave it in the desert for 12 months Mm. six months in they turn it through 180 degrees and then leave it again for six months um and it's the, the point the point is to see how it copes with that extreme temperature extreme sunlight and they can't accept any signs of heat or sun damage you know fading mm. leather or and, and also the temperature or... change from you yeah. know from, from sort of 40 plus degrees during the day to minus goodness knows what at night and imagine how hot it gets between the metal roof and the headlining apparently boiling point 100 degrees c mm. um and then yeah at night drops right down again um and he said that eventually an arnage did so well in that test 
it later served on Bentley's own fleet, undamaged. Yeah, whereas but, when they first did it, when Arnage, they, I can't remember what he said, but basically the car just it just died, didn't it? It wasn't good, yeah. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. Amazing. I can remember interviewing, I think it was Uli's predecessor, um, Rothenpiller was his name, and Joachim Rothenpiller, I think, uh, who was quite a formidable chap. Um, and I went up to crew to talk to him when he first arrived. And I said to him, what were your first impressions when you got here? He was the sort of production and engineering boss. And he just went, shut the factory. <laughs> he was so <laughs> old <laughs> by the way things were being done there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and I can remember the other thing I can remember is, you know, at the time, you know, it was a period of such enormous change, wasn't it? You know, there have been people, who, you know, generations of the same family been, have been working there. And there were people who went around wearing black armbands, uh, literally. <laughs> no, they really did. Um, because they all considered themselves to be, you know, Rolls Royce people. Mm. Um, and talking to the people who were in charge at the time. And the job that had to be done to explain to them, it wasn't a question of, you know, Rolls Royce and Bentley staying as independents or, or 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 going to Volkswagen. It was a question of Bentley surviving, or there being literally no Bentley. Mm. The companies would not have survived had it not, you know, been been rescued by Volkswagen. So I I think that that is actually one of the cases um, where we can point to a car and say it saved the company. Yeah. Now that's not but, to say that if that hadn't happened, another one wouldn't have come along from another manufacturer and that might have saved it. But I think certainly the Continental GT mm. saved Bentley. And actually, in the case of that car, it's not, as you've just been describing, it's not just that they lucked into a a new car at the right time in the right sector at the right price point. It was an entire sort of cultural shift at Korea, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Oh, completely. An enormous, an enormous effort to get that car to market in the right price point, the right category. And it worked. It absolutely worked. Can I, can, I, can, I, can I tell you just one last very quick Conta GT story? Go on. Uh, which was the, oh, who knows, maybe 10 years ago, I was doing, maybe it was on the 10th, I don't know, who knows, I was doing a second-hand story for Autocar, and we were comparing a second-hand Conta GT with a DB9 and a Gallardo. Um, and we'd sourced these cars from dealers, and we are going to meet at some test track somewhere. And the night before... Um, the bloke from the Bentley dealer rang up and said, like, I'm really sorry, but this immaculate, pristine Continental GT, which we're going to have, um, somebody just came in with a briefcase full of money and they bought it and it's gone. And I went, well, we're stuffed. You have to help. He said, well, we haven't got any other cars. I said, well, you haven't got a single Continental GT. And he said, well, one did come in last night, but it's done 85,000 miles. It looks like it's been bounced off every single curb in London. It's a complete map. We haven't looked at it. Um, and, you know, if, if you really, um, and I said, I'll have it because mm. we were desperate. And so this thing turned up looking absolutely frightful. And it you got in the car and you drove it. And compared to the Aston and the, the Lamborghini, it felt like it had been built yesterday. Even wow. after that, all those miles, that terrible life, it felt so strong. And yeah, the quality just shone through. Mm, mm. They built a solid car, didn't they? They still do. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Um, you've mentioned Aston Martin. Yeah, so we've got a couple here, haven't we? And I do quite like the fact that Aston Martin was saved by one car, and then ten years later saved by another car. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Um, so let, we'll start with the DB7. Yeah, uh, mid nineteen nineties. Yes. Um, so what do you remember of Aston Martin at that time? I mean, what were they? What were they building? Well, yeah, so that's all over there. They were building, you know, they, they're building Virages and Virage Volantes. An automatic Virage Volante is is a good candidate for the worst car I ever drove. Um, <laughs> and those big, fantastic, you know, V600 um, yeah. advantages with a twin supercharged V8 and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's, you know, it's, um, I guess it's like what we're talking about at Bentley and living on oldie worldy charm because um, they weren't competitive in, in any way. And, uh, Victor Gauntlet, um, absolutely wonderful, brilliant man who was in charge of the company, saw the company. There was no way the company could survive um, in private ownership. Um, and so he sold it to Ford. Um, and really, the DB7 was the car. When it came out, the company was was by then owned by Ford. But it had been, you know, Ferrari had lost 
sorry for it. Aston Martin had lost all its engineering uh, capacity. Um, they couldn't engineer anything, which is why it was farmed out to Tom Walkershaw mm. uh, and why it was designed by Ian Callum, uh, our friend Ian Callum, while he was at TWR. Um, and, you know, they had to be convinced that, you know, an XJS could be reskinned and call an Aston Martin um, and so and, and be credible in that place. And I th- and I think because it looked so incredible, and I think with Aston Martin, probably more than any other car, in fact, I would say more than any other car, it is the look of the thing, isn't it? Mm. More than a Ferrari, more than a Bentley, more than a Lamborghini, more, it, you know, it, it has to be beautiful. And I can remember going to the very first Festival of Speed in 1993. Um, and, you know, we, we have these ama- amazing Jerry Judah sculptures outside, you know the, the house these days. These days, back then, 1993, there was just a DB7 on the plinth, and just looking at it, and just thinking, there is not a bad line in this car. Mm. Wherever you look at it, however you look at it, front three quarter, rear three quarter, front back side, whatever. It's just, and everybody just went, wow. Nobody was talking about it being a reskinned XGS. I don't think we were really well, we were aware of it, but we weren't focused on it. Mm. Um, and it drove well enough, um, and. You know, what the DB7 did is it got Ford's attention. That's what it mm. did. Um, you know, there were Ford executives, this is absolutely true, in Dearborn who thought the company they owned was called Austin Martin. Yeah. That's how little they knew. <laughs> yeah. Um, what and, do you think their plans were for it? Why did they buy it? Because it was well, going I think, cheap, I guess, and it had heritage. Uh, yeah, because they were in that period of expansion, weren't they? And they wanted premium brands. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, they yeah. bought Jaguar and they had Volvo and, you know, and that sort of thing. And they were creating what became the premier automotive group, PAG, mm. which you will remember. Um, and I suspect to Ford, uh, at the time, the sums of money weren't that significant um, because I imagine they got it for a, you know, for a, something of a song. Um and the DB7, so the DB7, and that's why we're going to go on and talk about the DB9 a little bit. The DB7 was almost like the sort of the probation car, the trial car. Get this right, mm. and then, yeah, we might just hang on to you. You might just have a future, but this mm. has got to fly. Um, and it did. And they suddenly thought, oh, okay. So what we're going to do is we're not just going to continue and build another one. We're going to build a factory. Mm. You're going to be, you know, we're going to start giving you resources so you, you can start to engineer cars in-house yourself. Um, you're going to get an all-new platform, which you will be able to spin almost anything off. You know, and that was the VH platform, which came you know, off which came the everything from the Vantage to the Rapide with the DB9 in the middle. Um, and because of the success of the DB7, that meant that Ford were prepared to put a pile of money in but even so if the db9 hadn't worked just as well if it hadn't been in its own time just as impressive a car as the db7 had been all that would have been for nothing yeah and so the db9 which was the car that actually set the tone and if you look at you know the aston martins today you know they're still built on you know uh, on a platform made out of extruded um aluminium and so much of the learning and the philosophy, if not the actual components of the Aston Martins today, date back to the DB9. Uh, and so, and the DB7 wasn't had anything to do with it. As I said, the DB7 was was you know 1970s technology, really. Um, and so, yeah, uh, between the two of them, they absolutely saved Aston Martin. I mean, I can remember mm. Victor Gauntlet told me that twice during his time there, he went into work in the morning expecting to shut the factory gates for good as he left. That's how close it came, um, and so yeah, I think anybody who loves cars in general, Aston Martin in particular, has a, has a has a lot to be thankful for for, the, for for those two. I remember when the DB9 was new um, around two thousand and four, yeah. and this was I was definitely reading a lot of car magazines at the time, but we weren't sort of bombarded with images on the web of new cars the way we are now. Mm. Um, certainly not. And the, the car was brand new, the DB9. And I was um, driving with friends in the town where we went to school, a town called Thornbury, a few miles north of Bristol. Um, I didn't live in Thornbury. All my friends did. But I was driving through Thornbury with friends and a DB9 came the other way. And wow. I could not believe what I'd just seen. I yeah. could not believe. I was 17 or 18. 
um, astonished, uh, maybe I was a bit older, no, around that, amazed to have seen this thing driving through this little town that I went to school in. And I knew where it was going because there is only one sort of salubrious place in Thornbury, Thornbury Castle, it's a, you know, posh hotel. And I knew it was going there. So I turned around, drove straight to the castle and found it in the car park. Um, and just remember being so excited to see this thing yeah. in person. Yeah. Um, and I guess that excitement that I felt was being felt by lots of people around Aston Martin at the time. As you say, all this new infrastructure, oh, completely new backing, new cars. Um, it just felt like a, a whole new, I suppose it was a whole new era for Aston Martin. I mean, yeah, until then, you know, Aston Martin's either not been built by Aston Martin because they've been built by TWR or they've been built by men wearing white coats with pencils behind their ear, um, mm. you know, in Newport Pagnell. And then here comes this state-of-the-art factory mm. um, with capacity for huge expansion. I mean, sufficient so that to this day, they could still build every non-SUV they make there. Um, and yeah, it was it was incredible. I can remember another reason that we knew the DB9 was, was good news was, um, astonishingly, given how rarely back then these particular manufacturers launched cars, Ferrari and Aston Martin decided to launch their new flagship coupes to the British media on the same day. <laughs> so the 612 Scaglietti yeah. um, and the DB9, we were invited to drive it on the same day. And so <laughs> we'll just turn around to Ferrari and said, I'm really sorry, um, but we're not coming. Wow. And so Ferrari, so actually, so, and Ferrari, to their credit, um, said, well, we better see if we can find a plan B. And so in the end, I think the DB9 launch was on a Monday, certainly in the south of France, and the Ferrari launch uh, was obviously in Italy, and they moved to the Friday before. So we went down, uh, I guess, Thursday, Friday, drove the Ferrari. And so we turned up at the DB9 launch with incredibly like 48-hour-old experience of mm. probably its closest rival. And we knew exactly where the standard was. And, you know, we just knew if an Aston Martin could get anywhere near where that Ferrari was, then, you know, this was this was going to be a good day in the Midlands. Um, and it was better. There was, there was, it was just a nicer, it wasn't quite as quick, but it just felt nicer. It was more compact. It was certainly much better looking. I was just much, much happier um, and more at home than the DB9. I can remember going back and thinking, wow, they've done it. Mm, blimey. Gosh, that must have been extraordinary at the time. Um, so just on the, briefly on the DB7, again, Ian Callum has written about how he designed the DB7 for us, the intercooler. And in it, he explains, and I think I've got this right, Andrew, you'll put me right if not. I think it was, um, Tom Walkinshaw, who pitched first Jaguar, this new yes, car. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. DB7. Yeah. Became the DB7. They didn't want yeah. it. No. So he went to Aston Martin instead, and they thought, oh, we'll have that. Yeah. Um, and so just imagine if Jaguar had said, yeah, we'd like the look at it, like the look of this. Thanks, Tom. We'll do it. Um, well, the irony is, so Jaguar had done this car, the XJ41, um, which was going to be the replacement for the XJS on a new platform, but it was getting bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier. Uh, until eventually um, Ford pulled the plug on it. And it was Tom who'd said, no, no, you don't need to do all that. Just reskin the XJS. Mm. And Jaguar went, nah, that's never going to work. So Tom went, well, fair enough. Um, and he told Ian, I hope I'm getting this right, Ian, particularly for listening to this, um, they had a clay model of what the car could look like. And Tom turned around to Ian and went, go on, Ian, just turn it into Aston Martin, mate. Mm. And the <laughs> irony is, after the DB7, Jaguar thought, oh, well, Maybe we can. And so they then did the XKA, mm. which was also a reskinned XJS, albeit yes. with a new V8 in it. So wow. imagine how much time and effort and money would have been saved if they just <laughs> said, when Walkershaw first turned up with this thing, said, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that. Mm. But then but maybe Aston Martin wouldn't have been saved. Amazing, yeah. isn't it? These sliding mm. doors moments. Um, okay, so we've done a couple of exotic British high-end cars. Let's do some more mainstream stuff. Um Starting with the Ford Mondeo. Yeah. Early 1990s. What state was Ford in? Just producing rubbish. Terrible cars. <laughs> terrible. I'm not talking about Ford in America because, you know, we weren't that tuned into what they're doing over there. This is, this is Ford in Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, Sierras and Escorts. Yeah. I mean, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Mm. Anybody who's old enough listening to this to know what I want, you know, to, to, to have driven those cars will know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Um, these cars were just, they were just such terrible lowest common. I and mean, they were such cynical cars. They would sell. I mean, I can remember the Mark IV Escort came out and we gave it auto car. We gave it the panning of all pannings, rightly so. And then the, the sales charts came out and surprise, surprise, there it was, best, best selling car in Britain again. Mm. Um, but, you know, but they would do it because Ford had, you know, they had more, they, they were bigger than anybody else. They had a bigger marketing spend. They had more dealers than anybody yeah, else. Yeah, they had and scale, back, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, they had scale. And this was back in the day, you know, there, there wasn't an internet. So who did you go to? to find out, you know, what your next car should be. Well, the only person you're likely to know who knew anything about cars is your local car dealer. Yeah. And then there's a Ford dealer at the end of the road. And so unsurprisingly, he's going to go in there and say, well, I think what you need is this, you need this new whizzy fourth generation, you know, Escort. And so that's what people did. And so, yeah. but the cars were getting an increasingly poor reputation. I don't think there's any doubt at all that if they carried on down that road as people became enlightened uh, and so much more knowledgeable about cars that um, it would have been absolutely catastrophic for them. Um, but actually what happened was they they read the room um, and they replaced the Sierra with this thing which we knew as CDW27, CD because it existed between the C and D um, size categories, and W for world, which meant it was going to sell all over the world. Um, I'm not sure what the 27 was, but, you know, we we went in, I think, January 93 down to the south of France to drive the Mondeo. And I think I have said this before on another podcast. We knew that car was great before we ever sat in it because mm. Ford rang up uh, the road to ran up me on the road test test auto car and said, you know, looking forward to seeing you, that sort of thing. Um, understand you might want to bring a few rivals down. Tell you what, why don't we get an enormous transporter and you can stick them all <laughs> on that and fly down with us? And, yeah. we, and we, we, of course, we didn't accept the invitation. But if we thought, you know, a manufacturer which asks you to basically bring all its rivals is either talking the best game ever and performing the bluff of all bluffs, or they know they've got a really cracking car. And, of course, they did. It was the latter. Um, yeah. And it changed... It changed the whole philosophy at Ford because after that, you know, we all know what came next. The Escort was replaced with the Focus. Mm, mm. And I don't think there's ever been a bigger you know, leap from absolutely worst to best class, the best car in the class than there was between um, the Escort and the Focus. I mean, the Mondeo did it, um, but, you know, clearly that worked and they thought we would be onto something here. And then they did the Focus, the Mark I Focus in 97, I think. Um and it was just, it was extraordinary. It was, you know, and, and, and Ford got themselves, to an extent, regained their reputation for producing cars that were great to drive. And they lived off it ever since. Yeah. And again, you know, that was Ford finding its identity, rediscovering itself. And there was, you know, and it was done in a single moment. It was done when, I guess it was Richard Perry Jones, just said, enough. Yeah. Enough. We yeah. cannot, we cannot carry on peddling slickly marketed mediocrity. Mm. Cannot do it. We have to produce. One of the things that is, I find, I mean, it sounds blindingly obvious, but you know, all the cars on this list, they're really good cars, and yet so many of the cars that you know, I don't know. It's, I just find it really interesting that ultimately, at the end of the day, if you want a car to save your company. The product, the product, the product. Yeah. It's not the marketing or the yeah. advertising or the yeah. anything else. It's the product. It's mm. not the price. It's not the equipment. It's all these other things which people, you know, say really determines whether a car sells. And ultimately, if you want something to save your company, there are no shortcuts. You've just got to go and produce a bloody good car. Mm. Um, I don't think the intercooler has an article about every single car that we're going to talk about here, but the, uh, it was Mel Nichols who wrote a piece about the Mondeo and how that car was developed and how it did totally turn Ford around. Um, and he writes that Richard Parry Jones would spend time driving with Sir Jackie Stewart in Scotland, yeah, yeah. really refining these Mondeo prototypes. Um, so Actually, it can come down to just a small sort of nucleus of people, can't it? A small handful of people who really drive it forward and make make the difference. Working, you with need a, one person. Wider team. Yeah, you, you need one person. You need an RPJ um, yeah, with who's got enough clout, enough, enough to, to to convince a board yeah. that you've got to change direction. Mm. 
Um, and that's what and that's what happened. And yeah, it was again. I was so lucky to have been there at so many of these moments, um, and and to see it happen in front of me. Mm, blimey! Well, here's one that probably isn't going to resonate with our listeners quite so much, but it, oh, it's absolutely true that the Nissan Qashqai um, saved Nissan in Europe. Certainly, probably without the the Qashqai's success in sort of around 2006, Nissan probably would have withdrawn from Europe. That's certainly what David Tuig thinks. Um, and do you remember he came yeah. on the podcast, episode 156, if you want to go back. And he talks about his career and certainly the Nissan Qashqai because he was chief vehicle engineer um, for that car. Um, and he explains how it was a really a bit of a punt from Nissan, but it just hit the market in the right sector, at the right price point at the right time. And it flew out of showrooms. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just a car that judged the mood to absolute yeah. perfection. Yeah. Um, you know, as you say, it's not the sort of car that, you know, petrol heads are going to get excited about. I certainly didn't get excited about it when it first came, came out. Um, but if you looked upon it as what the manufacturer needed at that time, which was a game-changing car mm. to save it, um, certainly in, you know, in that region – it just got it all right. It ticked. It, it understood that in that market, you don't need to be the fastest or the best handler or anything else. You just need to have something for everybody, mm. um, and that's what it did. Mm. You know, and it, and it and it looked different and it looked good, um, and yeah, it just it just captured the moment. And I think that was a brilliant in, in, in a very different sort of way to the way we'll talk about almost any other car on this podcast it was a very very clever piece of engineering because yeah. not only did they do all that but they could do it um for a price that they could afford you know from a company which was hemorrhaging cash at the time um it was just a very very smartly thought out executed and delivered car yeah and it um it's as though it, the Qashqai predicted that families would want crossover SUVs. Um, that they, they'd prefer driving around in one of those than a, an estate car, which is certainly the case now, isn't it? And David also explains how hard they worked to keep the cost of the thing down, which yeah. in that market, that sector is absolutely critical. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so that's not one to excite the car enthusiast, but let's do one or a couple um, that are a bit more on, on on topic for us. Ferrari, right? We're talking early yeah. 1990s. Again, this isn't... There's so much of this ex- stuff happening in the early 1990s, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, about- you're right. Yeah. Yeah, we've got another one that um, coming up shortly that happened sort of mid-1990s. Um, God, what was going on during that time? Maybe it's just on reflection and in hindsight with 30-odd years to look back on, we can see the effect these yeah. cars had. Yeah, um, so, yeah, but tell us what sort of condition Ferrari was in in the early 1990s. I think it was doing okay. Um, and so, with so, so often we look at these things, and we and, and you look at the, yes, like Ford was still selling lots of cars when the, yeah. when the Mondeo came out, but you could see the direction of travel and you could see where things would end up. And Ferrari in the early 1990s, you know, they had they had the Testarossa, they had the 348. And they had the Mondial. Three cars which are never going to figure on anyone's top 50 greatest Ferraris of all time. The Mondial was kind of okay, but it was slow and looked strange. Um, the Testarossa, I've always said, is better than its reputation was, but it's it went up against in group tests against Lamborghini Countaches and always lost because it wasn't as fast and it was a bit soft and um, its handling was reputedly a bit tricky and that sort of thing. Um, and the 348 was terrible. Um, yeah we've mentioned that malevolent, recently, we? um, yeah. malevolent car and and then 
as I'm sure we've mentioned on the podcast in the past, I, you know, and nobody at Ferrari will ever admit this, but the coincidence is just too great to ignore. You know, this thing called the Honda, Honda NSX comes along. Mm. This beautiful, lightweight, all aluminium um, car from Honda of all people um, with this screaming V6 engine sounding unbelievable, 8,000 revs. And we all just go, oh, wow. Um, and then, you know, Autocar did a, a four-car test with an NSX, a 348, and a Spree and a 911 Turbo, and the Ferrari came last. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Ferraris don't come last in groups. It just doesn't happen. No. Um, and I think Ferrari realised that, you know, this was a borderline existential threat, and they needed to sort themselves out. And so, and what I find so instructive um is that the car they came up with, well, there were two cars, I'll get to the other one in a minute, but the car they came up with, the F355, was so indescribably better than the 348 it replaced, despite the fact it was actually only a facelift. It wasn't a new car. Mm. So it showed how good the 348 could have been, and it suggested very strongly that Ferrari just didn't feel at the time the need to try that hard with it. And then when suddenly they were faced with the absolute necessity to make the most out of it, they come around and they produce this brilliant, brilliant, fabulous car with the, you know, with the six speed gearbox and the five valve cylinder engine and beautiful, you know, the, the hideous handling turned into one of the sweetest handling mid engine cars I've ever driven. And suddenly, you know, that, and also the other thing that came out in 93 was the four, five, six. Yeah. First Ferrari, I can remember going down and driving it and just sitting in it and thinking, hang on, where's the parts bin interior? Mm. One of the games with Ferraris back then was you just sit in there and you just try to work out where all the bits came from. And, you know, there'll be, I don't know, indicator stalks from Fiat Puntos and, you know, and <laughs> or, or window lifters from Pandas, oh, who knows what. But, um, and then suddenly, you know, the 456 comes out and it's got an all new V12 in it. Mm. Um, and it's got this exquisite interior. Um, and it looks beautiful, and you suddenly think, "Well, wow, this is this is incredible." And this was the car that basically replaced the four one two I, which you know was a an evolution of an evolution of an evolution of a car which started life in the early nineteen seventies, and suddenly Ferrari back on form again. Um, and yeah, the, you know those two between them, uh, I think Ferrari, if they carried on, if they hadn't you know, woken up and smelt the coffee, I think that they would have been in a terrible situation. Mm. God, Um, yeah. So car companies really have been guilty often in the past of complacency, relying on their brand and their reputation and their volume, perhaps in the case of Ford and others. Um, But as we've said, it does take one person with clout and a vision. um, And perhaps that one person at Ferrari was Luca de Montezemolo. Yes, Um, now, recently, I spoke to Franco Ciamatti, who in that era was head of Ferrari's testing department, wasn't he? Um, the He's a brilliant engineer. and I, he, I first met Franco. Franco was the man Ferrari wheeled out to introduce me to the 456. Okay. So Franco and I went and had lunch together in the Cavallina. He won't remember this. Funnily enough, I do. Um, Piero Ferrari walked in, and it was just like seeing a ghost because he looked so like his dad. Really? Um, yeah, wow. yeah, absolutely. Um, it was one of those, it's a bit of an aside, but it was one of those wonderful Ferrari trips where, you know, you think everything's arranged and you turn up and they go, Mr. Frank, it's so lovely to see you. Why didn't you tell us you were coming? <laughs> um, and, and, and then funnily enough, it's, you know, it, it, it is already, but the car wasn't, you know, I had to wait a bit. So that's why we had to go and have lunch at the Cavallino. And then we had, didn't have enough time with the car. And we had to shoot, we, we, we shot eight pages in a cover for autocar in an hour and a half, including mm. getting the car to and from the location, which I was always quite proud of. Um, but yes, but, but, but Franco was the bloke who they wheeled out to me to introduce me to that car. So I'm not sure exactly what he did, whether, whether he was its chief engineer or whatever, but, but certainly, you know, Franco is a man of, oh, I mean, massive intellect and vision. He's also one of the loveliest bloke you ever meet, but um, he certainly represented this new approach that Ferrari yeah. had taken. Yeah. Um, and that's the important thing. So I, I spoke to Franco and I, I said to him, what did Luca de Montezemolo do? Give me a couple of examples. He gave me two examples. I'm sure there's lots across the board that he did to turn 
um, the Ferrari road car department around. And he said that one simple change was to create teams working on an individual model. So they wouldn't be working across several different models all at once. They'd just be focused on one new car. Um, And another was that he properly engaged with the suppliers of the sort of less exotic stuff. So as you can imagine, Ferrari had always had good relationships with tyre companies, brake and clutch suppliers, um, because it's Ferrari. But things like door seals, you know, the, the companies that produced those parts didn't really take Ferrari very seriously because the volumes were low. They were more interested in the big volume mass market players. Um, and so Ferrari didn't really get any of their attention. They, they These companies wouldn't send their top engineers to Ferrari. They'd send a salesperson. Yeah. Um, and Luca got into them and said, take us seriously. Um, and they did. And so things like door seals, and I'm sure there are plenty of other things, the stuff that really makes a difference to the quality of a car just went through the roof. Um, yeah. So, yeah, fascinating. One guy, one guy can make such a difference. Yeah. Um, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Do you know what? I'm looking at the next two. We're still in the mid-90s. Um, <laughs> we've got we've got Lotus and Porsche. Oh, God, um, yeah. Should we do the Series 1 Elise quickly? Yeah. Um, so the car, the car side of Lotus was lost back then. Um, again, I remember talking to our friend Julian Thompson, who designed the Series 1 Elise. Um, and he told me back then things were so difficult on the road car side that everybody at Lotus wanted to be involved in the engineering side, which was doing mm-hmm. really well. Yeah, um, That's where the money was being made. That's where the opportunities were, it seemed. So a small handful of people, um, and it was, it was a really tiny group of people, the likes of Roger Becker, who wanted to do what they thought was a proper Lotus. Um, a mid-engine car, a simple, light, rear-drive car, unlike the Elan that they'd just done. Um, and they they produced this gorgeous-looking Elise, sensational to drive. And you'll remember much more than me um, what impact it had when it arrived. Well, I mean, if you look at what Lotus was producing immediately before then, it was the very last of the... Esprit, well, not quite the very last, but certainly the back end of the Esprit, which was a car which had been designed in the early 1970s. Uh, and we're now in the mid-1990s. Um, you know, sales were absolutely on the floor. And I think so many companies just forget what it was which made them great in the first place, what it was that made people think, okay, I'm going to buy one of those. And I think with Lotus, it was the original... Alain, which really, really, by no means Lotus's his first road car. I mean, the Elite before that was an amazing thing technologically. Um, but I think that's the car which people just thought, yeah, that's for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and for very good reason. Uh, and the Elise was just another one of those cars. It was it was a Lotus. More than anything else, whatever you say about, you know, how fast it went or uh, how light it was or anything else, actually, it just felt like a Lotus. You just thought, you know, if if you conjured up what all you wanted in your mind a Lotus to be like, to drive, that's what that Elise was. Mm. Um, it was also, you know, as you said, it was a beautiful car. It looks, it, it looked fantastic in the same way that the Elan did back in 1962 when it was launched. Um, and, you know, suddenly we just thought, these guys have got it. They've remembered. They're not trying to sell Ferrari rivaling supercars anymore, uh, or not exclusively. They've remembered what made them great in the first place. And unsurprisingly, none of us were surprised that, you know, Q started to form. And this was, you know, this was all under the ownership of Romano Artioli, mm-hmm. uh, who also owned Bugatti at the time. Um, and it, the, the Elise name came, A, because it begins and ends with an E, but also I think it was Artioli's either daughter, I think maybe granddaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's not much else to say, really. It was, you know, it was what a Lotus should be. It was, yeah, you know, all Lotuses have been, all the really great Lotuses have been very light and very clever. Mm. And if you look at the, you know, we think of cars built out of extruded aluminium sections these days, and we think, well, yeah, they'd be dead. But, you know, back then... Yeah, it was totally new. It was totally new. They were gluing, they mm. glued the monocoque <laughs> together. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. And it was stiff and it was strong. Um, you know, uh, very early cars came with aluminium brake discs. It weighed, what did it weigh? Did it weigh under 700, the very first ones? Or maybe under 800, but they were so light. Mm. Um, and 
And yet they had just enough. And this is why I think they they really, really succeeded and became more than just a sort of tiny little niche type car. They had just enough practicality. Um, mm. They had proper windows. There was a bit of stuff where you could, space where you could store stuff. There was, you know, a decent amount of room in you. And then, of course, they rode beautifully well. So two of you could go off somewhere. I mean, the roofs were infernally fiddly, but once you'd worked out how that worked, um, you know, they weren't, they, they were a car that you could do a distance in in a way that you would probably wouldn't choose to in a caterer or you might choose to, but your other half wouldn't. Mm. And so it was, it was an easier sell to your partner, husband, wife, whatever, um, because it was a more usable car. And yet for you, the driver, it was everything you ever wanted the Lotus to be. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, I drove one for the first time a little while ago, earlier this year, actually. I just, I loved it. Um, and actually, the, that Series 1 Elise, it was so successful, they couldn't build them quickly enough because of how it had been designed. I think the body panels were still being laid up by hand. So they couldn't they couldn't industrialise that process. So they had to redesign it quite quickly. And the Series 2 came along, and that was the one that they could build in greater volumes. Mm-hmm. Um Gosh, yeah, that's a really good example, that one. Um, as is the Porsche Boxster, the original, mid-1990s. Um, new era at Porsche, wasn't it? It must, have, it must have been amazing to see this thing come along. Porsche were really, Porsche really was going down the tubes. Yeah. If you look at it before then. Unthinkable now. I know. But you know, what did they have? They had the 968, yeah. ancient, based yeah. on the mid-70s car. The 928, ancient, based on a late 70s car. Yeah. And the 911. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, beyond ancient. Yeah. Um, and, and not, and, and that wasn't, that was only the start of their problems. The other problem that they had was they're building their cars much too well. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, you know, a 993 is a wonderful, fabulous, it's one of my favorite cars of all time, but it was not built on a remotely economically sensible basis at mm. all. And I think, did they not get a bunch of, Japanese industrial consultants in who went through the company and said, this is mad. Really? Wow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that happened. I'm pretty sure that happened. Um, And so what they decided to do was build not so much a new car, but a new basis for a car, Mm. um, a new platform. And the first manifestation of it was the Boxster. Which I guess was go in exactly the same way as the Lees harkened back to you know the things that made Lotus great in the first days. So did so the Boxster reminded people of you know three five sixes and that sort of thing. And it was it was a car which communicated with people who's who's who loved what Porsches had traditionally been, mm. um, and it was much more affordable, um, both for people to buy, but also for Porsche to build. Um, but the real benefit of it is you got two other cars with it. So you got a Cayman by putting a roof on it. Um, and you got a 911 because mm. from the A pillars forward, a Boxster and a 911, which came along, I think, uh, well, I think the Boxster was 96. Yeah. And the 911 was 98. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Soon so after. They, yeah. yeah, exactly. So they were the same car from, you know, the doors forward. Uh, and then obviously, you know, they put a, you know, a, a two plus two with the engine in the back on the back of it. But you know, they all came off the same platform. Viability in terms of what it cost them to build. It was game changing for Porsche. And because the cars were so well realized and judged the market so well. Um, yeah, it set Porsche on a road, didn't it? And what those cars, I guess, did ultimately, if we, you know, and this is really putting on the you know, the spectacles and looking back from a distance of, you know, many years and with considerable hindsight, is it got them to the Cayenne. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, and that was, yeah, but the Cayenne didn't save Porsche because it had already, it had already been mm. saved by then. That's why the Cayenne's not on this list. The Cayenne transformed Porsche. It, it thrived Porsche, if, you can, if I can put it yeah. that way. It, it, it allowed the company to thrive, it, didn't it? It absolutely changed Porsche from a manufacturer of, a niche manufacturer of small two-door sports cars into this global colossus that is that it is now 
but the com- but the job had already the job of actually saving the company had already been done by the Boxster and the 911. Uh, not so much the Cayman because that came later and it never sold in those sorts of numbers. But yeah, so you know the Boxster was not just for what it was as a car, but for what it came from and what could be done with it. Absolutely save Porsche. I mean, Porsche mm. would have gone, Porsche would have, you know, there were certainly in the early to mid 1990s, you would not have found a sensible, informed commentator who at that time would have told you that Porsche could survive in ind- independent ownership. Mm. And yet it did. And it was the Boxster that did that. Gosh, it's extraordinary how, yeah. So I think um, in 95, so the year before the Boxster arrived, um, as far as I can tell, looking around online, Porsche sold 19,000 cars. Last year, it sold more than 300,000. <laughs> Just yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, we haven't got much time, so let's rattle off a few quickly. Um, Peugeot okay. 205? Yeah, I don't know enough about this. I just, I, I, I was just, I, I was just scratching around this morning having a look, um, and I, I don't know how much trouble. I, I don't know whether Peugeot was in enormous trouble for the two or five. Maybe someone can come on and help us. But, but certainly when it came out, that was transformational for the company. That was absolute transformation, and it was another one of those cars that just set the tone. Um, you know, get one car right, you realise what works, so you do it again. Um, and that's you know out of the two hundred five came the three hundred six came the four hundred five you know mm-hmm. um, all these cars which were light great looking practical fun everything that we want a Peugeot to be still even today um, and uh, yeah it was and, and obviously then you know a year so I think the two hundred five was eighty three eighty four GTI comes along um, and you know that changes that game all by itself as well. So an immensely significant car. I'm not I'm not going to say that it saved the company because only because I'm not I don't know enough myself, but certainly absolutely game changing. So other game changing cars then. Um BMW new class, Neuer class. Um oh, oh no see no that absolutely saved the company. Mm. Um yeah so this was you know BMW in the 1950s um were building two sorts of cars, both of them wrong. So they're building <laughs> you know very expensive very high quality cars that nobody wanted and very cheap not so high very high quality you know so micro cars bubble cars that you know quite a few people wanted but there was no margin at all so bmw was going under and what they needed what they didn't have was a car that normal people could buy a an everyday do anything go anywhere car um and in 1962 the new class or neuer classer any people speak German, apologies for my pronunciation, came along in 1962. From that, I guess the most famous cars to come from it um, were, which came a little bit later, were the shorter, cheaper, um, what we call O2 series. So mm. 1602, 2002. And we all think of 2002 TIIs and turbos and that sort of thing. But in the 1960s, um, that family of cars from the first 1500 in 1962 to, you know, right up until the three series came along um got bmw from a position of you know very near death to becoming a thriving car company so that actually is actually a really good example of a car or entire series of cars that undoubtedly saved their company um we do need to move on so but we could have spoken about the audi quattro could have spoken about the rolls royce rolls royce phantom we could have spoken about 2003 phantom yeah golf as well um but why is it then just in summary, why is it that a car company often has to be in great strife, great financial peril, maybe peering over the precipice for it to produce finally, at long last, a great car that turns things around? Is it it's it's funny. bizarre, isn't it? Is it desperation? Is it? It's uh, yeah. I think it's. I mean, you know, you'd think that they would actually be in the worst possible position to be yeah. doing it because presumably, presumably, there's just no there's no money about. Um, everybody is you know, cheesed off and disillusioned and down in the mouth. And yet time and again, the very best cars that companies produce are produced in their greatest hour of need when you think that they were in the least position to do it. And I think it can only come down to necessity being the mother of invention. Mm. You know, if it's, if the choice you are faced with is adapt or die, Mm. um, then that's not much of a choice, is it? Mm. Mm. Um, and, and and I think it's down to that. I think it's you know, I I think that companies get to a point 
um, they're almost sort of sleepwalking towards disaster. And then something happens, you know, I don't know, you know, some rival car comes along mm. or you suddenly see your sales fall off a cliff or you just saw some new person comes to the company and goes, we can't carry on like this. Mm. And then everybody wakes up and suddenly thinks, shit, we've got to do something. We've got to do something now and we've got to do something good. And if you have the right person or the right people with the right vision, then those can actually be very, very fertile times mm. um, because you're being driven by more than just wanting to do a good job. You're being driven, you're being motivated by survival. Um, and and you fight and you fight and you fight and you get what you get. And I, I don't know, I, I find it fascinating. But, mm. you know, the absolute best cars come out of the worst situations. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So, top tip: get, you know, allow your company to slip <laughs> into to, to somewhere near yeah. the uh, the open grave, and then at the last moment, put on the brakes. And um, yeah, as long as you're confident, car, you've also... got one person, at least one person, with clout and a vision, and the way you vision, go. who um, everybody else buys into. Yeah. yeah. So, just the opposite. Then, um, can we think of any examples of car individual cars that have killed their companies? Well, um, well, <laughs> the DeLorean. Yeah, there wasn't really a. Company it wasn't well killed, established was before, was it? Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, I mean, clearly that that wasn't that wasn't great um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, I suppose the other example you give is is my back, but I mean that was a badge engineering exercise, really. It was, you know, in fact, the my back was going to be called. Um, and Mercedes until quite late in the day, but the, you know, but they did exhume the MyBike brand for it. There were huge plans for it. They never came to it because people just didn't buy into it, and, and no one was fooled that it was not a Mercedes. Everybody knew it was a stretched S class. So, mm. you know, mm. and at the same time, at exactly the same time, you know, Rolls Royce were had just started producing, you know, the Phantom, mm. which was unlike anything else. Um, and you know, one appeared authentic, one didn't, and one thrived, and the other died. There you go. There's another podcast topic then: cars that have killed a different company, um, <laughs> or or forced them to improve, as in as the as in the case of the NSX and Ferrari. Um, that's one to explore, isn't it? Um, okay. Well, mm. we we there we go. We we've got to wrap this episode up. We've got a listener question coming in a moment. Um, I will just remind you all before that to go and subscribe or follow this podcast. Whatever app you use, there'll be a little button that says subscribe or follow. Um, so just hit that. It means you don't miss an episode, but it actually helps us an enormous amount. It means we can find new listeners that way. Um, so just to wrap things up, listener question from Kian Alam, who, so we, we published our Porsche 911 triple test um, mm. on the app and website a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's done really well. The video is now live on the Intercooler YouTube channel as well. Um, as we're speaking, it's been watched around a hundred thousand times almost which is huge for our little channel we mm. you know we haven't really done a great deal of video go um, and subscribe we're going to be doing a lot more yeah we are so go and go and check that video out um but kian wants to know if we would choose um a 718 cayman gts four liter over a 911 carrera t so it's a bit cheaper um it's got the naturally aspirated four liter engine not a um not a twin turbo engine. It's got a, the nice, the sweeter six speed manual, not the seven speed manual. Uh, but it's not a nine eleven. Doesn't have the little rear seats. Which way would you go? I feel a twin test coming on. <laughs> <laughs> um, blimey! Well, if you don't want to give the answer away, maybe we'll sit on that one. But it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? I well, okay. I'll answer it while reserving the right to completely change my mind when we get the two on a decent road mm. on a decent road. I've always said that if I could afford it, when this business has had enough of me, I'd get a Cayman GTS mm. four litre. Um because it's just me. It's 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 just it's 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 the right level of performance for me. Um it's the right, you know, it's it's practical enough for me to want to use it every day. It's it's just it just takes this car that ticks all my boxes. So I think having said that, I would have to say Cayman. But you know, for exactly also for the reasons you you, you say, naturally aspirated engine, you know, that beautiful six-speed gearbox. Um but I was so I don't know, I know you were too. I was so 
knocked out by the tea. And and, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, with with, with a car like the tea, because it, the, it, there's nothing revolutionary about it. It's basically it's a stock Carrera with a few nice bits on it and a manual yeah. gearbox. Yeah. And yet it's just one of those cars that gels, isn't it? It just mm-hmm. comes together yeah. so well that when you get in it, you just think, wow, this is what I want to be in. So I don't know, but hold the gun to my head. It's the Cayman, but we we ought to go and do it, shouldn't we? Maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see. Yeah. Kian, good question. Thank you. Um, mm. Keep your questions coming across. Um, it's a fun way to end the podcast, and we'll do it again next week. Many thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.